Hello, welcome to Healing Out Loud with me, your host, Jackie Shea. This is a place to relate to the darkest days and be inspired by ultimate triumph. Each week, I interview a brave guest who has extensive experience with illness and or wellness, and hopefully we will leave you inspired to warrior on, highly informed about something new, and connected to a tribe of amazing humans. Because the only way out is through, but it helps to have a tribe walking with you. Hello, and welcome to episode 47. Wow kind of amazing i so appreciate you being here every week or this week or for the first time welcome yay okay this is a fully listener supported podcast and there are various amazing ways you can help please please take a moment after the episode to subscribe rate and review this podcast consider becoming a patron on Patreon dot com slash healing out loud a link will be in the show notes where for a small monthly donation you can get bonus stuff from me uh and i mean small as little as five dollars a month join the healing out loud with jackie shea facebook group and subscribe to my newsletter at jackie where i give away a downloadable self-care checklist which I love. I am also a coach for health, wellness, and life transformation. If you have any interest in working with me, please contact me to set up a time to talk for free. Okay, guys, this week is extra special. I brought on Maggie Whittam, a stroke survivor. She is creating a documentary film, The Great Now What, about her story, which she hopes will be a beautiful and life-affirming film for stroke survivors, people with chronic pain and chronic illness, and people with disabilities. You guys, this episode is so inspiring and relatable AF. Let's dive in. I have Maggie Whittam. She suffered a massive hemorrhagic stroke at age 33, which left her with many disabilities and challenges, including extreme visual impairments, intense chronic nerve pain, a paralyzed face, and a weak and uncoordinated left side. She is creating a documentary film, The Great Now What, about her story, which she hopes will be a beautiful and life-affirming film for stroke survivors, people with chronic pain and chronic illness, and people with with disabilities. Maggie, hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I um, just love what you're doing and I love the project and you know, there's a there's a fundraiser going on for it right now, guys, and I will get into talking about that, but I highly suggest everyone donate if they can. Um, it's just really beautiful what you're doing with this. So, Noelle Janka, a friend who was on the podcast a, a few weeks ago, um, happened to tag me in something on Facebook that was attached to your story. You were on the news, I think, and, and your story kind of was was going around the, the world of, of chronic illness people on Facebook. And I took a look and I was so amazed, truly, um, just from being an actor myself to knowing that side of things for you to, to being a person who struggled with chronic illness to, you know, wanting to empower people and listeners to take health into their own hands and just everything you're doing is, is so amazing. So tell me and my listeners, Maggie, a little bit about what your charmed life was like before the incident. So, um, you know, I look back at it now and I think, man, I was so blessed 
with the life that I had. Um, I had been extremely healthy up until this point. Um, and I had this great body that did all the things I wanted it to. Um, I, you know, considered myself a pretty serious athlete and I played a lot of sports. Um, I was a competitive horseback rider until I was in my early twenties and I, had been extremely independent and adventurous in my 20s. Um, after I graduated from college, I'd gone and lived and worked abroad for quite a while, um, a little bit in the UK and a little bit in Asia and a little bit in Canada. And um, I had this magical, charmed life. And um, it was it was amazing. I'm so glad that I had that time when I could be, you know, free and take risks and enjoy this extremely healthy body that I used to have. Yeah, that's really active. And a lot of my guests <clears throat> on the show, including myself, you know, pre-incident or pre-injury or pre-illness, we are just some of the most <laughs> the most active life lover people I've ever spoken to. Um so what happened? So um, I was 33 and I'd been back in the U.S. for a while and I decided it was time for me to go to graduate school. So I was at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. and I was there in the Academy for Classical Acting, which is a one-year MFA program um, where you study Shakespeare and his contemporaries. And you leave with an MFA, which is the terminal degree that you can get in acting. And um, I have a friend who went there. Like, I'm so excited oh, that you. Did? Yeah, I'm so excited that you went there. Um, I was so excited for her when she got in. You guys, that school, the school that Maggie's talking about, is a really big deal, and and um, that's awesome that you went there. <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah, it was. I loved it. It was an amazing program, and. Um, you know, I spent all day immersed in Shakespeare and Scansion and a lot of very active stuff like stage combat and movement and dance and Alexander technique. Um, it was very physical and very demanding, but I really loved my time there. Yeah. And, I, and you have to be a really good actor to get in, guys, <clears throat> just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, in any case, I did not get to finish. Um, I had just finished my first semester, and it was two days into Christmas break, and I got this really bad headache, and I thought I was just dehydrated, and I needed to do, drink some water and um, take some ibuprofen, but I ended up feeling pretty poorly the rest of the day and then by 24 hours after my headache I had a moment where I didn't have my balance for a sec and it was scary but it also disappeared as quickly as it had come and I didn't really know what to think of it because that kind of thing had never happened to me before and you know by the evening of the second day I was having some speech problems and that was because the right corner of my mouth was not 
losing anymore. And, you know, my entire career and life up to that point had included quite a lot of voiceover work. And so I was very aware of how my voice should sound and I couldn't figure out why, why it wasn't coming out the way I wanted it to. And then, you know, I just thought I have the flu and I need to get enough rest. And that's the thing that worked, you know, every time in the past when I wasn't feeling good, I just was pushing myself too hard and I needed to sleep and I would be better, you know. And so I go to bed super early that second night and I get up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom and I have another instant where I don't have my balance, but it vanishes again. But the fact that it happened a second time is very scary. And I think I should probably see a doctor, you know, if this is happening. And so I get up the next morning, which is now 48 hours after my first headache and nothing is, is better. And I call up my insurance that I just been approved for and found a doctor that I could go and see and I call up their office and they say, yeah, you're approved, but <laughs> well, you can see you in two months. And I'd say, I, I think I need to see someone today. So they said, go to the emergency room. And I was living very close to George Washington University so I could walk to class easily and uh, they have a great hospital there as well. So I walked to the hospital, and as I'm walking there, um, my left leg just isn't participating very well, and I start limping, and I can't figure out why. And I, in retrospect, very easily could have fallen down in the middle of the street. I'm so glad I didn't. I get to the ER, I check myself in, I burst into tears, and I say, I don't feel well. And uh, I'm in the ER for a while. They give me a lot of different tests. Um, and I get a CAT scan several hours after I check in, and they tell me I have some bleeding in my brain stem. And I have no idea what that means. Um, and they say we need to monitor, monitor you in the ICU overnight. Um, and by that evening, I couldn't walk anymore. And uh, I'm in the ICU overnight. And things just go from bad to worse. And um, I'm, I've been in the hospital now for a couple of days. It's now Christmas morning, and um, the hemorrhage has worsened, and uh, my entire left side of my body is paralyzed and the right side of my face, and my vision is really distorted, and it's double, and I can't see well and I've also lost my uh, gag reflex so I can't uh, breathe safely on my own anymore so they have to put a ventilator in and um, and I'm in a terrible terrible situation 
uh, Christmas Day, my sister flies to the East Coast, and uh, my fiancé at the time, his father, also comes, and they, like, watch over me in the hospital, and the situation is extremely critical, and I have to have brain surgery. If I don't, then uh, if the hemorrhage worsens anymore, then I'm going to die, and um, I can't move at all and I can't speak and um, I really can't see very well I can still hear (laughs) kind of and um, I'm communicating with my sister and with you know the people who are coming into the room with hand signals um, because I can still move my right hand thankfully and uh a thumbs up is yes, and a pointer finger is no. And then my sister will hold my hand and say the alphabet. And uh, I'll squeeze her hand on the letter and spell out words, letter by letter, very, very slowly um, to communicate. But it's very difficult for me because I'm on a sedative because people aren't typically conscious when they're um, when they have a ventilator in because your body it, it's this foreign object down your trachea and you know your body wants to pull it out um, and it's just a crazy situation and I'm also on this steroid that is supposed to help with the swelling in my brain but a side effect of it is that it's giving me these horrendous hallucinations. Um, and I'm like <laughs> hallucinating that I'm in Siberia and <laughs> France and California and meeting all these strange people. Mm. And, um, <laughs> there's like dinosaurs and stuff. Oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, the situation is, is critical and I have to have brain surgery and thankfully I'm transferred to Johns Hopkins which has a great neurosurgery department and this brilliant surgeon um, does a nine-hour surgery on my brainstem which is a very difficult place to get to because it's right in the middle of your head and she removes the hemorrhage And the hemorrhage was caused by something called a cavernous angioma, which is sometimes shortened to cavernoma, sometimes called a cerebral cavernous malformation, and it's a blood vessel malformation. And apparently, one in 500 people has a cavernoma, but only 30% of those will develop symptoms in your lifetime, and they may cause smaller problems like dizziness, um, but then it can kind of go up from there. They might cause seizures, and then in an extremely critical situation, they'll cause hemorrhages, and um, that's what happened to me. So I had a hemorrhagic stroke caused by a cavernous angioma. And would there have been any way to find out that you had the, sorry, cavernous angioma? Mm-hmm. Um, um, well, it, you know, it's kind of hard to say. Like, sometimes these 
things will act up earlier in your life. And you may have had minor problems like tingling in your fingers or some sort of visual issue or dizziness or something. Um, and maybe, you know, sometimes it takes people a while to get diagnosed with this because people just don't know a whole lot about it. Doctors don't know a whole lot about it. Um, but if you get an MRI, um, you can see it. But, you know, at age 33, I had never had a reason to get an MRI on my brain. Mm. And so it's very likely I had this since I was born. Um, but because there's no MRI from any point earlier in my life, you couldn't really say for sure, but it's likely. I and see. They're working on like being able to test for this kind of thing. And there's two different kinds. There's a sporadic malformation, which is where you have just one. And that's what I had. There's also a genetic malformation and you can have several. You Mm -hmm. can have like 10, 20, 30, 40 all over your brain. Wow. And, but you can see all of those in an MRI if, if you have one. Right. Yes. Wow. Okay. So a nine hour long surgery and then it saves your life. Um, It did, yeah. And you come out of the surgery. And how long ago was this, Maggie? So this is Christmas four years ago. So Christmas 2014. Okay. So four years ago. So you come out of this surgery and what, what is the news you get about, you know, your recovery? The surgery went extremely well, as well as it possibly could have. And um, it being such a risky place to go, surgeons don't normally (laughs) um, decide they want to do surgery unless the situation is so bad that, you know, the alternative is death. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's like, things can't get any worse. We're going to go in there and and try and get this out. Um, But after I had the surgery... Maybe a day or two later, I was still on the ventilator and we didn't know if I could breathe on my own. And you don't really know that for sure until you pull the ventilator out. And I could, and that was great news. Um, and uh, I was able to move my foot just a tiny bit on the left side a couple of days after the surgery and that was also some great news but like immediately after the surgery it's like well we gotta wait and see you know what mm. what happens and what doesn't because when you've had a stroke your brain is done it takes your brain a while to not be in that stunned shocked place anymore so you know, that may take a couple of months. You're not going to know, you know, a week later what what is there and what isn't. Um, so will you so, tell us – so yeah. will you tell us a little more on that note about what strokes actually are? <laughs> sure. So there are two different kinds of strokes, hemorrhagic strokes, which is the less common kind are caused by bleeding in the brain. And ischemic strokes, which are way more common, they're 87% of all strokes are caused by a clot in your blood vessel. 
And um, ischemic strokes are preventable. So if you get to the hospital in time and you get the clot-busting medicine, um, that will greatly, greatly, greatly reduce um, the challenges that you're going to have after your stroke. So everyone listening should be aware of the, you know, signs of stroke, which can be abbreviated to the acronym BFAST, B for balance, E for eyes, F for face, because your face can droop if you're having a stroke or your smile will be uneven. A for arms, if one of your arms is uh, drooping and you can't hold your arms level. Um, S for speech. Like, can you answer a simple question like, who is the president or what is the day today? Um, and T is time to get to the hospital. Because if you get there in time, they can help you with this drug. Um, it didn't matter for me necessarily because I was having a hemorrhagic stroke. But Got it. lots of strokes are preventable. So I hope people will take that information, put it in their brain. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. I did not know that, that – um that acronym okay so so there are two different kinds one is is preventable what is happening so i love i mean i don't love it but you you say the brain is stunned which just makes sense to me like i can i can visualize that what's happening um so do you know a little more about like what what happens so what happens when there's this blood clot so what's happening is that you know, your brain is very, very delicate, and um, it's got all these structures with neurons, and, and um, they're all fed by by capillaries and blood that is not touching the actual brain tissue. So there's like a, something called a blood-brain barrier. If blood actually touches your brain tissue, um, it's very bad. The brain tissue um, can start to die because of the blood um, that's around it. It irritates it, and sometimes it compresses it. So if you have bleeding or if you have a blockage um, where the brain tissue isn't getting the nutrients it needs, in both of those cases, the brain tissue can die. So that is what is happening in a stroke. You know, if, if if you have a burst blood vessel in your brain, the tissue around that hemorrhage is potentially dying. And if you have a blockage from a clot, the tissue beyond the clot is potentially dying because it's not being nourished. Mm. Yeah, and you sent me some crazy uh, stats that I did not know. Um, in the U.S., someone has a stroke every 40 seconds and that stroke kills twice as many women as breast cancer, and that 80% of strokes are preventable, which you just told us. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had no idea that a stroke happens every 40 seconds. So, and I yeah, think- it's really common. And there are some other stats actually on your, your fundraising page in the video you made. Do, what are those? I think it's like um, 80 million people or something are living with- the effects of, of a stroke and that only 10% of people have a full recovery from a stroke? 
Sure. Um, the, the stats are that stroke is the number four killer in the United States and the number one cause of long-term disability. And only 10% of stroke survivors uh, make a full recovery. And 80 million Americans have a disability of some kind. Okay. Not necessarily caused by a stroke. Got it. But there are 7 million stroke survivors in the U.S. Wow. So the the people that have the recovery, so you're in the hospital, you you essentially have no idea, right, whether or not you're going to have a recovery and what capacity you're going to have going forward. Right. What yeah. is going, What what is happening inside of you? I mean, what does that feel like? Um, you know, I heard that statistic that 10% of stroke survivors make full recovery and <laughs> – and I was kind of like, well, you know, I'm a hard worker and I'm determined and I'm just going to throw all of my mental and physical energy into my stroke recovery and I'm going to be in that 10%. Um, and I'm a highly motivated person. Mm-hmm. So I, I worked my ass off in my recovery and, you know, it's, it's, it's tough because you can put a whole lot of energy into it and not necessarily get the equivalent results back. Um, and that is something that I've had to learn over the years uh, that I've had since my stroke. It was completely inconceivable to me that anything that had happened to me would be permanent. You know, I thought whatever's going on with my body is temporary I had been in the best shape of my life when this happened. I was super fit. I was eating really well. And the idea that suddenly I had all these permanent disabilities, it it just was inconceivable to me that that could be true. Um, But, you know, it just settles into you after, you know, about nine months. Uh, into my recovery, I, I started to think, geez, problems are not going to go away. And now I'm, you know, I'm four years, four years out and, you know, some things have improved, but the, the period of massive improvement happened at the beginning and now the improvements are small, but they're still happening. Yeah. Cause there's, I'm assuming, and I could be totally off base here, but that the improvements could they 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 would just like slowly continue throughout your lifetime. Is that right? Right. Yeah. It's really important to stay motivated if you're a stroke survivor and keep working on your recovery because you do get results over time if you keep working on stuff. Um, and, you know, I, being 37 now, have potentially quite a lot of time ahead of me. So I need to keep working on it because things will improve slowly over time. Mm-hmm. And where are you at today with your physical um, recovery and your disabilities? Well, I, um, I have some problems that have gotten better and some problems that have gotten worse. I have some visual impairments. Um, both of my eyes 
after the stroke were pointed in the wrong directions and they didn't sync up anymore. You have two eyeballs, but you only see one image normally um, because your brain is synthesizing that image into what you quote-unquote see. Um, but I, you know, my uh, the nerves that controlled my eyeballs were really damaged, so I was seeing double all the time. And so I had to get um, eye, eyeball realignment surgery, basically. They, they took my eyeball and cut the muscles on either side and realigned it in my eye socket and sewed the muscles back together. And I had that done on both eyes. And now I have a region of single vision, which is great, but I still have double vision in quite a lot of areas where I look. And that means I, I can't safely drive. I also have another thing called hypertrophic olivary degeneration, which is a involuntary muscle uh, kind of spasm in my eyeballs. So my eyeballs are kind of jumping up and down all the time. And so everything I see is on a shaky camcorder, always moving. Mm. And that is something that is like this, sort of long-term thing that kind of showed up more after a year had passed and is now, you know, a little bit worse than it was in the first year, but it should stabilize. Um, I also, my stroke was right in the nerve that controlled my facial muscles on the right-hand side of my face. So the right side of my face was paralyzed, but um, I got a surgery called a hypoglossal nerve transfer where they took 30% of my tongue nerve and sewed it, attached it to my facial nerve, which means that the nerve conduction grew into my face again, which meant my face became symmetrical. And that was a really good thing because it was so psychologically difficult to look at my face and see it, you know, like melting off the side of my head um, because I had been, you know, a very conventionally attractive woman before this happened. And, um, and my face is something that just like destroyed my spirit mm. um, in this process. But getting the surgery that helped my face regained symmetry and now I can make a little tiny Mona Lisa smile with my lips has been good. And that has been a major improvement from where I was. Mm, yeah. yeah. You know, that, that piece of it, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up about your, uh, about how, how much it crushed your spirits. Um, to 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 see to see someone so different than what you were used to and um i i call it i say that lyme disease stripped me down to human i was an actor i was you know uh very pretty and so much of my self-worth was actually kind of built into these things and when i got sick you know, I sur I didn't have paralysis or anything like that, but I just it was like all of the the 
charisma, like drained out of my body. (laughs) And I I did not feel beautiful or pretty and I hated looking at myself in the mirror and I no longer got the attention that I was used to getting and all of these things happen and I just, it was one of the things that I struggled the most with actually. Um, So I'm really glad you brought that up and, and it's a big it's so impressive to me that you're you're getting back on stage now and that you 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 talk a lot about about that 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 experience of just like losing what you knew of yourself can yeah you, it was yeah yeah <laughs> go ahead i want you to talk it, more about it yeah well just i mean i resonate so much with that that you know a lot of the value that I felt I had and my self-worth was in my charm and in my beauty and in my, you know, ability to do whatever with this body, you know, that I had that could, could carry things and do things and pick up whatever, you know, sport I needed to learn easily and, I was an actor who, you know, considered myself pretty versatile and to suddenly be um, not (laughs) any of those things, not, not pretty, not charming, not have any energy, not um, be able to, you know, help other people and always needing help yourself. Um, And it was, it was really, really tough. And, um, I have been on this epic battle of like worthiness and trying to find my self-worth again because I feel like it vanished, you know, Mm -hmm. and and I vanished. And the people who used to see me in society didn't see me anymore. And somehow I had felt like I became invisible. Yes. Yes. Part of that was me hiding, you know, I was hiding because I was so ashamed of what had happened to me and how I looked and how I moved now. Um, but it's been, it's been good to, you know, get out there in the world again and, and show people what I look like now. It's an enormous deal for me when I decided to put the first picture of my face on social media, uh, which I only did a couple of months ago. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And also something that happened, I know so much of your life changed overnight, um, but uh, you you were engaged at the time. And what happened with that relationship? I don't really want to go too much into that, Um, but we worked, you know, we worked as a couple. We weren't perfect, but we were good. Um, and then we didn't work anymore. Right. And it's it's a sh- it's a shame, but it's it's better this right. way. You know, it's better for him. It's better for me. So, um, did the breakup I, happen? And what I've learned. Yeah. What I've learned in retrospect is that three quarters of couples <laughs> end up separated or divorced after one person has been diagnosed with a chronic illness. And that statistic is staggering, you know, but it's, it's true. 
Right. Yeah, I know. I, I know it's a really, the reason I bring it up is because it's a really, it's a big topic for people, you know, staying together, breaking up after things like this happen. And and the other reason I bring it up is because you were, you were just going through so much. And I wondered if, if that breakup w- was, was something that just, just crushed you at the time or, or not. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I felt like I had a stroke and my entire world changed with the initial stroke. And then I had another like life shattering experience when I realized you're not going to get better. (laughs) Um, You're not going to get back to where you were. Um, And then I had another one when this relationship was over. Yeah. Yeah, so much, so much to get through. So, such a process. And now you're making this movie. You're getting back on, you've gotten back on stage, Maggie, which I'm just, (laughs) I'm so, I'm so obsessed with this, quite frankly. I'm obsessed with you in this way. You, You got back on stage. And you're making this movie, and you make this really beautiful art too. Um, tell us about uh, about your headshot, uh, what you did with your headshot. Well, um, you know, as an actor, I had a big old pile of headshots that I could take around with me, and I was looking at them um, about a year and a half after my stroke, a year maybe, and just thinking this person doesn't exist anymore. Um, this person that I is in this picture, like I desperately, desperately want to see her, but it's like looking at a picture of someone who has recently died and you, you can't, uh, find that person again, you know? And, but that person is me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't know how to communicate this idea that somehow I am still me, I'm still Maggie, but I'm not this person in the picture anymore. So I started to create these sort of collage projects where I would take the, take the photo apart and reassemble it so it, it looked you know, distorted and like shattered and reassembled. And um, it helped me It helped me get the point across to other people that I am not the same, you know, and I'm not okay. I may look on the outside pretty much the way I look, looked before, but I'm, I'm not the same. I'm fundamentally changed. Right. So those, those are those. Yeah, and it, yeah, and you say, you know, that it was to illustrate a shattered sense of identity. And I just think so many people with chronic illness can relate to that. Even if even if it's not about paralysis or even if your externals do look so so similar to the way they once did, 
there is a shattered sense of identity that goes with that. And there is a ton of grief work to be done. And I, I imagine you've done a lot of a lot of grieving and a lot of work around this to get to where you are today. What are some of the things you did to, to get through your experience? Well, uh, you know, I cried a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I probably spent a significant portion of the day weeping uh, for the entire first year. Yeah. Um, and I still, I still cry and I don't, I don't try and repress it in myself if I feel the need to cry because life is hard. You know, it's hard to be a person with a disability in this society and it's really hard in the winter and it's hard financially and it's hard to date this way and I mean there's just a lot of challenges um and I go to a therapist and I talk with the therapist about my life and trying to move forward and um I've been creating these art projects I think the the headshot ones are very effective I also create these Barbie doll kind of things that illustrate what my life is like with chronic pain and how my body feels and then I also create some digital work where I take an image and I show what it looks like um, with double vision so those things have helped me get through my grief and I also you know after a stroke you really gotta take a big old step back from life as you knew it and you gotta slow down you got to rest a lot and you got to eat well. And so just taking a lot of time to rest has been good for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love how much creativity has been a part of your recovery and your way of sharing with the world what, what this is like. Um, tell me about getting back on stage. How did that happen? <laughs> Well, um, there's this extraordinary company here in Denver where I live called Family Theater Company, which is spelled P-H-A-M-A-L-Y, and they only cast actors with disabilities, and you have to have a disability uh, that qualifies under the ADA to audition, and it's a really extraordinary organization, and they produce phenomenal work. They always do a big musical in the summer and they do some smaller programming and, um, you know, serendipitous and great that they're in this city where I happen to live now because it's not like every city has a company like this. You know, it's all about getting people with disabilities on stage and it's not like we have, uh, you know, a person with a disability on stage and we need to explain it somehow. It's just, they're out there. They're out there doing their work as an actor and they're doing a great job. And it's not like, oh, that was a good show for a group of people with disabilities. It was like, that was a great show, period. And I, you know, I had been an actor for a long time and I thought that maybe that period of my life was over. And, you know, I also thought that I this hideous creature who should never be seen again. Um, But, you know, some people were very encouraging 
to me to give it a shot. And I, I did a, a small stage reading with them of a Shakespeare play called Midsummer Night's Dream. And that was last year. And then this year, in the summer, I did their big musical production, which was Into the Woods. And that was a huge step for me because I didn't tell anyone <laughs> that I was in Midsummer Night's Dream. But I told, like, everyone I knew uh, to come see Into the Woods. And it was a huge production, big cast, big orchestra, gorgeous costumes and lights and sound. And and it was just... Uh, it was wonderful, wonderful to be a part of. Wow. What did that do for you? How did it feel to be on stage again? It felt really good. It it was it was really nice because I had always been a comic actor and I'd done a lot of improv comedy and the character that I got to play, Cinderella's stepmother, she's pretty funny. She's pretty <laughs> wicked evil and <laughs> she's funny. Mm-hmm. And um I got to make people laugh and that was so gratifying and just being out there on stage with other people you know and they've got their canes they've got their walkers they've got their wheelchairs and it's like they're just all out there doing this great work and being a part of that was very validating to me oh god yes it's amazing so is this when when you started getting on stage again? Is that around the time that you decided to do a documentary? How did how did your documentary called The Great Now What that we're now going to talk about come to be? I had um, gotten back to Denver after you know my whole debacle and all of these surgeries, and I was feeling very lost. And I watched a documentary called The Crash Reel, spelled R E E L. And it's about a guy who got a traumatic brain injury um, right before the Vancouver Olympics. And his name was Kevin Pierce. And he was this uh, very talented snowboarder. And people thought he's just going to go and win all the gold medals in Vancouver. And then seven weeks before the Olympics, he's in the half pipe uh, practicing. And he has this terrible fall and gets a traumatic brain injury that's very serious. And he's, his whole life changed. You know, his, he was on this trajectory, you know, to do these things and accomplish these great goals and be this amazing athlete. And everything changes, and, and he moves forward, and, and you see the difficulties that he has moving forward and you know when your whole concept of your life changes that is a monster thing to tackle and there's also a beautiful theme in the film about disability because Kevin Pierce has a couple of brothers and one of them has Down syndrome and there's also like a social impact message to the film about extreme sports and how we're asking extreme athletes to do these crazy things and then they fall and they get hurt and they get TBIs and you know who's going to care for them and who's going to insure them when they need medical care and it's just a great film I would really recommend it and it's very like empathetic and I watched that film and it resonated so much with me in terms of the story of you're headed one way and then 
things radically change in an instant and now you have to pick up the pieces and go forward somehow. And I thought, I want to make a film like that. Um, and so we've been working on it for a while and I found this amazing director to work with. Her name is Lisa Donato and she is so empathetic and so passionate about her work and she loves documentary filmmaking and we've been just slowly compiling it for a while and we've shot um, some footage here and there and gotten some great interviews and it's coming together slowly but surely and I think it will be a really important film for stroke survivors, for people with chronic pain and chronic illness and people with disabilities. And it follows you, um, by the way, guys, I will link to that documentary, um, the crash reel in the show notes. Um, and the, your doc, the great now what follows you, um, your life after, after stroke, right? Dating, getting back into, uh, um, getting back into, uh, sports and getting back on stage. Right, right. And I think, you know, it's it's about stroke and it's about stroke recovery. It's also about identity and about women in particular and femininity and trying to examine this question of what is beauty, what is femininity, and how does a woman with, you know, visible disabilities to that may make her quote-unquote unfeminine or quote-unquote unattractive by conventional standards, you know, how does she move forward in the, in the world? Right. Yeah. And you know what, Maggie, that's something that comes up on this podcast, uh, obviously to varying degrees, right? You have me with, with Lyme disease. I've had women on with breast cancer and double mastectomies, which has a whole other layer to it. Then, and there are women that have been on that are, that, um, get paralyzed, uh, and are in a wheelchair from now on. There are all these, these different ways in which it happens. And sometimes it's as simple as, you know, Hashimoto's disease, gaining weight, um, uh, being extra fatigued and just being in a way that you never imagined yourself being before and don't, and you don't feel attractive or charismatic. And it really does come up though with, with each person's story of chronic pain or illness or injury or trauma even, and so I do think it's so relatable, deeply, deeply relatable for people struggling with any of those things. And and I also think just for everyone, you know, um, I know that women really struggle with getting older too for these these same reasons. I think it's you know, a, at a yeah, certain go ahead. point in time, at a certain point in time, you may feel invisible as a woman because you have aged and. I, I felt like that because in one day I'd gone from a 33 year old to like a 93 year old. And I feel like suddenly the world just didn't see me anymore. Yeah. And you've really, you've really, you know, faced that head on. You really, even stepping back on stage, posting pictures of yourself. And I'm sure this is something you still struggle with on a, on a daily basis. It sounds like what are, what are some of the tips you would give to anyone out there who, you know, doesn't want to step outside their home right now. That's feeling so, so ugly and ashamed. Wow. You know, it's, 
it's tough. And I know that everyone is going to have a different sort of timeline. And I, you know, I definitely stayed in for a while and I didn't force myself to go out because it made me feel so badly. And now I just don't really care anymore. So, you know, just waiting that amount of time that it took for me to just not give a damn about anybody or anything to step outside, to step on stage um, was what I needed. You know, I'm not sure if it would apply to everyone, but I I needed to take that time. And I think that everyone should be a little nicer to themselves because I have said the most horrendous, critical, mean-spirited, obnoxious things to myself, things that I would never, ever say to anyone else in the world. Um, And they're so disparaging, but I've said them to myself, and in retrospect, I wish I could have been kinder to myself. Yeah, and I take it you actively engage with being kinder to yourself today. I do, I do. Uh, so beautiful. Um, so let's let's take a quick break for the end of the episode to chat about Maggie's weekly challenge for us. Welcome to our weekly challenge segment where we arm you with new tools each week to kick some self-care butt. As you explore all of these new options presented weekly, my hope is that you will come to collect a number of quick ways to take care of yourself inside and out. You will essentially have your very own and very handy self-care toolkit. Some of the challenges may not work for you and some will seem perfectly tailored to you. We are building up your defenses, inspiring your mind, body, and spirit toward total wellness. Keep in mind that the goal is always progress, not perfection. The only rule is that you are never allowed to beat yourself up. Keep me posted on your progress. Stay accountable. It helps. Okay, let's hit this week's challenge. Okay, Maggie, uh, what what do you think is a good challenge for my listeners this week? So I think a good challenge for people is to do something called box breathing which is something that you can do anywhere and for any length of time. And it helps me because my nervous system is really jacked up sometimes and overstimulated. And I use box breathing to try and calm it down again and get it down to a manageable level with my pain and my anxiety and stuff. So basically I breathe in for four counts, I hold for four counts, I breathe out for four counts, and hold for four counts. And I try and do that over and over and over again for 10 minutes, or maybe even just 30 seconds. Um, Depends on how much time I have. And I try and do it several times a day because it can sort of reset my emotional system and get me back to a place of rhythm and clarity. 
That's great. And that's the thing that people, my listeners, the guests, everyone with chronic illness and pain and injury and trauma, you know, we struggle with with a really jacked up central nervous system. So, and not just us, but everyone, but I think that people that are more sensitive to it or have real fallout from a jacked up central nervous system definitely you know, are listening to my show. So this is a really great exercise. I'm wondering, did somebody show this to you after your stroke or did you know it from before and start using it? I've done a lot of yoga before my stroke. And so I had done this particular type of breathing before. And, you know, when people started suggesting meditation to me, um, I got a meditation app and this is one of the things on the app. And, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is a good thing. And so I I don't use the app all the time. I use it a little bit. But mostly I just didn't try and focus on my breath on my own at any point in the day where I have a couple of moments to do it. Right. Awesome. Um, so that's great. So, guys, your weekly challenge this week is to do some box breathing see if you can add it to your awesome self-care toolkit and see if it's something that really works to bring down your anxiety which as we all know is essential for healing um so tell me maggie how you manage your very big full life today with self-care well i definitely try to not over schedule myself I used to be one of those people who said yes to everything and sure, I can help you with this and help you with that and be there for everybody, but I really can't do that now. So I keep my schedule quite minimal and I allow for periods in there where I can just kind of check out from what I might have had to do that day because I just can't you know, function. I can't do it if I, if I don't take some time to rest. So, you know, having a much quieter, calmer, smaller schedule has been good for me. And, you know, it was slowly building stuff back in because I couldn't work for 40, 14 months. And all I did was go to doctor's appointments and therapy appointments for a long time. And so then it was just a question of putting the things back in that will work. And I can't work full time anymore, but I do work just a little bit. And I'm lucky because I found a job that's very understanding and accommodating to me and what I can and cannot do. So I mean, I know it's not easy for people to find their ideal job, but finding a job that is understanding of your situation has been great, great for me and my ability to care for myself. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Are you able to live on your own? Yeah, I've been living alone now for two years, which is awesome. And, um, you know, not a lot of stroke survivors are able to live alone. They'll need someone to come in and do some caregiving for them. Um, but yeah, I've been, I have my own little one room apartment, one bedroom apartment and it's awesome. And I, I love it. No, oh, that's so cool. That's so beautiful. And I think the great now what is just going to have incredible success. I think it's so 
so beautiful. I really want to encourage everyone to go donate. I donated. I really believe in it. Um, so you, where can people go to donate? So uh, we're running a crowdfunding campaign right now, and it runs until November 27th. So you have uh, 10 days from when this podcast drops, or even less, uh, to go and contribute. And I would be so incredibly grateful. Um, you can go to our website at www.thegreatnowwhat.com to learn about the crowdfunding campaign and also learn more about the film. And you can also find us on Facebook. Uh, we're at facebook.com slash thegreatnowwhat. And that page is a page that I curate and I try and put something on there every day that is about stroke, about disability, about chronic illness, chronic pain, statistics, or, you know, general information, but also positive quotes, stuff like that. Amazing. Amazing, Maggie. Um, so I will link to all of that. And I just want to say a little shout out to November 27th. I know the campaign ends that day, but that is Giving Tuesday. Giving Tuesday is, you know, kind of an offset of, <laughs> I guess, Cyber Monday and Black Friday. So it's, it's a way, it's a day dedicated to giving back in the world in some way. And what a great way to start engaging with Thanksgiving and, and Giving Tuesday to donate to um, your campaign, really being of such service in this world to survivors, stroke survivors and chronic illness survivors and people living with chronic pain. Um, it means a great deal that you are out there, you know, doing this work for for people, for disabled people. Um Really beautiful. Thank you so much, Maggie. Where else can people find you? Well, um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Margaret Whittem, M-A-R-G-A-R-E-T-W-H-I-T-T-U-M. And I'm on Instagram as Maggie Whittem, M-A-G-G-I-E-W-H-I-T-T-U-M. But definitely check out the film. First and foremost. Yes. And check out me if you're interested. Yes. Uh, And I will link to all of that. Is there anything else you want to leave us with, Maggie? Just uh, stay strong. Keep going. Yeah, totally. Thanks, Maggie. And everyone, uh, stick around for everything I'm about to say right when this ends. And I will see you next week. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Healing Out Loud. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Find me at Jackie on Instagram, my favorite social media platform, and follow me at JackieShay.com if you want to stay in touch. You can also write to me through JackieShay.com if you're interested in working with me as your trusted wellness companion. I'm always happy to hear from you with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can also join the Healing Out Loud with Jackie Shea Facebook group. Have an amazing week, you kick-ass humans. I hope you're able to implement what you learned this week, and I can't wait to share more. Bye.